The scripture reading for today is taken from the Gospel of Luke, and we'll be reading together from Luke verses, uh, chapter 6, the verses 12 to 19, after which we'll focus as our text on verses 20 to 26. You'll be able to find that on page 1186 of your pew Bible. The first part gives us a bit of a refresher on where Jesus Christ is at this point in time. Hmm. Verse 11, we can see how opposition has begun. They are filled with rage, and these people who are opposing him, who have named themselves as his enemies, are discussing with each other and organizing what they might do to Jesus. And that gives us a bit of a backdrop of this sermon that we see today. We come to verse 12. It came to pass in these days that he went out to the mountain to pray. And continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called his disciples to himself, and from them he chose twelve, whom he also named apostles. Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called the Zealot, Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who also became a traitor. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and be healed of their diseases, as well as those who were tormented with unclean spirits, and they were healed. And the whole multitude sought to touch him For power went out from him and healed them all. And we come to our text for today. Then he lifted up his eyes towards his disciples and said, Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for indeed your reward is great in heaven. For in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full, for you shall hunger. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so they did to their fa- so did their fathers to the false prophets. So far the word of God. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the background of the text that we're looking at today is one that we've been looking at over the past number of weeks, and that's the response of Jesus to oppression. His enemies have finally begun to organize. They're plotting with one another how they might destroy him, and we can see in verse 12 how his first response to all of that has been prayer. Having prayed, he went and he appointed uh, disciples whom he named apostles, which is to say sent out ones. They are his ambassadors or messengers that he will be sending out to the world. And last of all, he gathers together the crowd. Filled with power, 
The power of God goes out from him and heals them all. Beginning by showing his compassion and healing them and freeing them from the oppression of demons, he then begins to preach. And by this, he shows that the healing was a means to an end. He shows us that the power of God goes out not just in miracles of healing, but the power goes out when the word of Jesus Christ goes out to the world. That being said, the message that he gives isn't one that you would expect for people who are being prepared for organized opposition. He tells them that they're blessed for the situation that they find themselves in. How does that work? Well, we'll look at this under the following theme today. Blessings and woes, the sermon on the plain. And we'll see, first of all, the people who received the sermon. Second, blessings and woes. And then finally, that final reminder. So before we dive into the blessings and woes in our passage today, there's one thing that we ought to notice. This sermon of Jesus Christ is commonly named the Sermon on the Plain. And the reason for that is found here in chapter 6, verse 17. It says, He came down with them and stood on a level place with a multitude of people. So the place where he is gathering together to preach to the crowds isn't on the hillside, but it's on a level place, a plain. If you have a sharp eye and you know your Gospels, you may have caught something here. The words of this Sermon on the Plain are very similar to Christ's Sermon on the Mount described in the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 5 to 7. But the situation is still quite different here. Scholarly opinion is divided on whether or not this is the same sermon. But as we ourselves look at it today, there's something we have to remember Jesus Christ was not a minister who stood in one place, preaching time and time again to the same people and to the same crowds. Jesus was actually what was called an itinerant preacher, which is to say a traveling preacher. He went from place to place teaching the people about God. And so it's not surprising that he would use the same sermon more than once. It would be like me using the same sermon to go down to Alora to preach there instead of making a whole new one again. The most likely case is that this is a different sermon from Matthew. There's no contradiction here. There's no need for questioning with regards to that. This is a different sermon from Matthew and not just a summary by someone who wasn't as good at taking notes as Matthew was and who got his places confused. So this is the background of where Jesus is preaching. Then he lifts up his eyes towards his disciples and he begins to speak. Now this sermon, you'll notice, isn't directed at those who don't believe. It's not something that's aimed at outsiders, If Jesus was responding to organized opposition, that would be almost something that you would expect, wouldn't it? That he has a sermon that's supporting and encouraging his inside group that blasts those who are on the outside to try to bring his people together by creating a bit of a common enemy and unite them in that way. You'd almost expect that, wouldn't you? But that's not what Jesus does. 
He doesn't make a sermon that's aimed at those who are opposing him, but rather he writes a sermon that is aimed at his own people, his own disciples. He aims his sermon not just at those 12 whom he named apostles. They had already left everything behind that they owned to follow him. And so you see him talking to those who are rich, for they have received their consolation. They wouldn't have had any riches. They had left all of that behind. So we can see that this sermon is aimed at the broad assembly of his disciples. The whole crowd that he had chosen his inner circle from. Everyone who has been drawn to follow him from chapters 5 verse 1 to chapter 6 verse 16 up to this point. Those who have come to hear and listen to what he's been teaching about himself. They've been the ones who have said, yes, we believe you, Jesus, and we want to follow you. We want to hear more. It's this group that he is addressing. And he begins by telling them the cost and requirements of living as a disciple. What they will expect if they live as his followers in this world. He doesn't promise them health and wealth. He doesn't promise them an outpouring of riches. Instead, he begins by teaching them of two types of people who will follow him. He teaches them these categories under the headings of blessings and woes. You can't help but see a parallel between the Old Testament and the New here as you come into these words of Jesus. You can see very clearly where he has grounded himself. As the Old Testament people of God were about to enter into the promised land, this new phase of life for them, the new land that God had given them, God had given them blessings and curses. And you can read about that in Deuteronomy 27 to 28. Blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. And it was a reminder for them that if they wanted to follow God, they were to live as people who belonged to God. Their lives were to reflect that fact in this new land that they were given. Now here too in the New Testament, Christ is bringing his people into something new. He is teaching them about the coming of the kingdom of God. Not an earthly land like the Old Testament people of God could look at, but a heavenly one. But there's more to it than just entering into a new phase or a new land. Jesus is also carrying on a pattern which we can find in the Old Testament. A pattern that's found in wisdom literature throughout the Old Testament. And this shows people the path of goodness and expresses confidence in God's ability to put it right when you suffer for it. Wisdom literature throughout the Old Testament will lay out those two paths, the path of goodness and the path of folly. And Jesus does this by describing the benefits of kingdom living and the grief that ultimately comes with worldly living. So he shows them two things. That these disciples of his are about to enter into a new phase of his ministry here on earth. And he shows them the benefits of kingdom living in the second place. 
And through this, he shows them, he uses this structure of two types of people who call themselves disciples of Christ. Two types of people who are in his little church here today. Those who are blessed and those on whom fall his woes. And this is the subject of his sermon on the plain, blessings and woes. And we'll begin looking at the blessings here today. So what does the word blessed actually mean? We've got our own point of view on that here in the West. And you only have to look at Twitter and Facebook and other media platforms to see what people's point of view is when it comes to the word blessed. Blessed is actually a popular thing here to celebrate with a hashtag for you who are not involved with social media. A hashtag is something that you put into a quote which links it to other quotes that are of the same type. Is that what's meant by Jesus here in our passage? The blessing that the world has. The blessings that the world describes. Well, that's actually not the case. We see that every good and perfect thing comes from above. James 1 verse 17 But Jesus Christ isn't talking about the things that all of our friends and neighbors might associate with that word blessed. Look at the list of things that he describes here. Would you say hashtag blessed to that? Hunger, thirst, mourning. We can say I spent a lot of time with my family here today and it was great, hashtag blessed. But would you see someone post on social media, I missed a meal today, hashtag blessed. That's not something that we would say. So that's one of the first things that we should reflect on here today, that Christ's point of view when it comes to blessings is quite a bit different from what we commonly understand. We can run the danger of cheapening that word, blessed, if we use it too lightly. And if we constantly follow the same pattern of posting on social media and and perpetuating this, we can run the danger of letting others think that we as Christians expect only good things in the Christian life. Now, there's nothing wrong with giving thanks and attributing these good things to God. But social media has this way of whitewashing lives, making them look better than they are. And then when our lives, when our lives don't line up with what others seem to be experiencing, we get cast into doubt. We see this mom whose kids always look clean and neat and organized with that hashtag blessed attached to it. Or men can see people on holidays that they can't afford to give to their own families with that same hashtag attached to it. And the response that can be triggered by that hashtag is, well, why is God not blessing me? Attaching that label to all of those pictures can have that response triggered within that, within our hearts. Why is God not blessing me? But what's important to remember for us today is that Jesus is saying, even in hardship, you're blessed. 
When you are poor, when you hunger, when you weep, even when men hate you, you are blessed. You who are my disciples are blessed. This is something that we need to hold on to tightly. Something that's different from how most of our fellow Canadians view these kinds of things. For us, this is an opportunity to open the eyes of our friends and neighbors to the knowledge that there's more to life than this world and its joys. You see, for many of our our friends and neighbors, it ends with those good things that they see happening to us and to themselves in the world. And for many of them, suffering is meaningless. Think about that for a moment. Imagine that you're going through a hard time, a terrible time, an unthinkably grief-filled time. And now imagine that you have nothing to hold on to in that. There's no higher purpose in it. There's no blessing in it. You suffer, you're miserable, you put your head down and you work through it and you hope that it comes to an end quickly. Now that's not the case for all of our friends. To be clear, I don't want to paint everybody like that with one broad brush, but for many, this is what they see. But this is not the case for Christians. For you who are loved by Jesus Christ, that's not the case at all. You can have hope, you can have patience, you can have joy in suffering. Why? Well, what's the common theme running through all of this? They experience this, verse 22, for the Son of Man's sake. Through suffering, you look to Jesus. You are willing to bear up under suffering because you know that God is shaping you by it. You are willing to accept it from his hand, even though there are times when you cry out under the weight of it. There are times when you cry out, even together with the believers in the Old Testament, in the book of Psalms, and you ask God, why? And you are weighed down by the burden you are willing to accept this from his hand even so because you know as we read in the letter to the Romans chapter 8 verse 28 that God is working this out for good for those who love him. Even in the midst of confusion and sorrow you are able to turn this over to the Lord and to believe and to trust that even though you can't understand how he could possibly do it, he is working it out for good. And this good can come out in many ways. To kill sin in our lives, remind us of its destructive consequences, to make us more dependent on him so that we Remember where our strength actually lies instead of relying on ourselves alone. To grow us in humility and compassion for others who are suffering. And there are ways in which we might not even know how it unfolds. 
But today's passage in particular points to this. So remind us that there is more to life than this world. And that's the key thing here. That there is more to life than this world. This is true for all Christians who suffer. But it's an especially great comfort and reminder for those who suffer because they are Christian. For those who have Jesus Christ who suffer for the sake of the Son of Man, who are made fun of at school, who are teased at work, who struggle at home, and more. Knowing that this world is not all there is to life gives stability and joy in the ups and downs because we have something to look ahead to. And that's what we find emphasized in these words now that you can find in our Bible reading today. You can see it especially in verse 21. Blessed are you who hunger now. Blessed are you who weep now. Because while you grieve now and while you struggle now, you're looking beyond today to a better and more beautiful tomorrow. You're not just putting down your head and pushing through this hard time. You're not just hoping that this will all blow over and that life will get better. But if Christ is your Lord, then you have a kingdom of heaven that awaits you. And you're living in this life, looking forward to heaven. You are living in this life, working through these difficulties to spread the kingdom message. You're looking forward to heaven and what you have now won't be able to compare with the eternal peace and joy of those who have that long-term view. So why does this matter? How does this help me in the present? Well, it gives stability to life. It gives purpose in life. What you pursue today is all part of a bigger goal. It's part of the pursuit of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. If you suffer setbacks in this life, and they are the thing that you're aiming at, then that will be devastating. But if you have your eyes on a goal that lies beyond that, then the things that happen in this life will still be hard, but they won't be the end you'll still be able to continue towards that goal. To put, into, to, to put this into practical terms, what does this look like? Well, let's look at the first topic that Jesus uses here. Blessed are you who are poor. Using money as an example. If your money is your only end goal, a healthy return and a comfortable retirement and you had your money, say, in the stock market in 2008 when it crashed and wiped out about 20% of everyone's savings, seeing that money go up was your only goal, then this would have been devastating for you. Every time the stock market has another hiccup, it would be devastating for you. But if money is a tool in your hands for working in this life, towards that final goal. It's a tool that's been given to you by God for kingdom work. And your focus was that kingdom. In light of that, raising your children to know and love Christ, and money served that end. Advancing kingdom work through missions, or whatever else the case was. 
Your focus was to work in order to be able to give to those in need. Ephesians 4 verse 28. And saving was something that you did as being a good steward of the money that God has entrusted to your care. If your focus was above all of that, the glory of God, through all of that, the glory of God, and you recognize this money as having been entrusted to your care by him, then it doesn't matter as much if the stock market goes up and down. It doesn't matter as much if we struggle through financial difficulties. It's still hard. It's still difficult. But these things hit you very differently if that is your perspective. What you have as your end goal matters. What you have as your end goal can give you stress or fear when things go poorly. Or what you have as your end goal can give you joy even in the midst of grief. A kingdom that transcends your current poverty can give you hope to be filled even in the midst of hunger, joy even in the midst of grief. For great is your reward in heaven. You're looking forward to a better day, a day in which you won't have to suffer from the effects of sin, a day in which you are working together with all of the saints towards a day in which your cup will be full to overflowing. But that being said, we can see the flip side of that in the following verses as well. Let's look at our passage again here. The next section is, Woe to you who are rich. Woe to you who are full. Woe to you who laugh now. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. Again, this is in response to the people who are interacting with Jesus. This is something that he's saying to those who call themselves his disciples. But there's something that we have to be clear on here today. This isn't just talking about the fact of having money being bad. If that was the case, then having a full stomach would be bad. Laughter would be bad. But the Bible talks about a joyful heart being good medicine. The Bible talks about recognizing wealth as coming from the Lord. The Bible talks about a good name being better than riches. So it's not talking about these things outright being bad. But if that's not the case, what is being talked about here and today? Well, to answer that question, we first need to answer another. What does the word woe actually mean? Now, we tend to think that woe is a warning. And there is some truth to that, perhaps. But woe is more than just a warning. Woe isn't really a word, but it's a cry or an exclamation. And it's one that shows pain, intense hardship, or distress. One commentator describes what's going on in this way. When Jesus says, woe to you, he's not so much pronouncing a final judgment as deploring the miserable condition in God's sight of those he is addressing. Their wretchedness lies not at least in the fact that they are living a fool's paradise, unaware of the misery that awaits him. 
And that's what's at the center of it all. That they are living in a fool's paradise. There are people even among those who have come to see Jesus and listen to him who are focusing on living their best life now. That's all there is to it for them. And they don't really think about life beyond that. And this ought to make us ask the question, is that me? Is all there is to life just looking at what I have now? When you've lost sight of the kingdom, when you've lost sight of the big picture of the reason for life on this earth, and when your focus is on riches, on being filled, on laughter all the time, and on having the opinion of those who are on earth, then you've lost sight of Jesus Christ. There's nothing wrong with being rich. There's nothing wrong with being full, with enjoying laughter, with loving life, with having men speak well of us. But the question that lies before us here today is, for what reason are we pursuing that and at what cost? For what reason and at what cost? Again, we come back to that comment at the end of verse 22. For the Son of Man's sake. Are we living for Christ? Or are we just living for ourselves? If we're living for ourselves, Christ's cry, woe. Christ's cry of sorrow and distress is very real because he knows that if we're just living for ourselves, this will lead to grief. If we're living for wealth, there will be a day when it's not able to save us. If we're living just to fill ourselves up with our appetites for food and for travel and so much more, there will be a day when that will come to an end as well. If we live for laughter alone, for good times, for the weekend, that will come to an end. If we live just for the good opinion of others, all of life is bent towards winning the favor of man instead of seeking, more importantly, the favor of God. That will come to an end as well. This isn't saying that we are to be indifferent to what other people think of us and indifferent to all of these other things. But the point is not to compromise who we are in Jesus Christ for the sake of the opinions and the joys and the treasures of this world. The book of Psalms talks about people who live like this. Psalm 17 verse 14 says it describes people who have these things at the forefront of their minds and nothing else as having had their reward in this world. And if this world is where your reward lies and you have no hope of anything beyond that, this broken world is the greatest joy that you have. Then Jesus says, woe. He cries out in sorrow and in distress because they have been shown the better way to live 
They have offered, been offered the riches of kingdom living, and yet they've chosen of their own free will the weak and temporary pleasures of this life. Now that can be a difficult thing to meditate on. One point after another, Jesus has held these things out to us. One thing after another that he has shown to be really weak foundations for us to stand on. And there can be the temptation to think, Jesus, these are are really strong words. This is difficult to bear. This is difficult to hold on to. But you have to remember that it's out of compassion that he tells us this. Our Lord Jesus Christ is showing his disciples that he loves them, that he cares about them, and he cares about the foundation that they are building their life on. If they're going to go down a path that's going to lead to a sad end, Christ warns his disciples He wants to show them that it's a weak foundation to stand on, a weak hope to hold to, and he shows them the better way to live, to live with him. And it's in light of all of that, that last thought especially, that we have one final thing to remember, a final reminder in this above all. We can look to this and we can stress about what Jesus wants from us, his people, But if we stress about this, then we forget one thing. The grace that Jesus offers to his disciples, even in the middle of all of this. He isn't just offering them a bar to measure up to and then throwing them by the wayside if they don't live up to it. He isn't making them do something and then after that leaving them to their own devices and hoping that they'll find their own way. But Jesus is offering them himself. He is saying that if you pursue these other things, you will come to a bad end. But for those who want to follow him, he gives the free gift of himself. He is calling them to holy living as the one who, in verse 19, we saw, has power flowing out of him. He is calling his people to holy living as the one who empowers them to do so. He is saying, if you're going to follow me, I will teach you how to live as a child of the kingdom of God. But you're not going to do this alone. I will go with you. You can find blessing in me. So Jesus began his preaching by offering hope and healing, by offering freedom from physical suffering. And now he offers freedom from the other things that bind us and the other things that tie us down. For those of us who want to hold on to those things, he gently chastises us and then he shows us a better way to live, a way in which we can find our strength in him. Just as his healing power went out to all who came to him, so also does his redeeming power and his mercy and grace go out to all who come to him, as many as God calls to himself. Not as those who come to him proudly wanting to hold on to the things that they love in this world, 
Not as those who hold on to the way that they live without a desire for change, but as those who come humbly, having heard the word of the Lord and having had our hearts opened by his spirit, coming as beggars with open hands, wanting change and seeking contact with that divine power that is present in Jesus, the power that goes out from him. He offers himself to these and he restores them to a right relationship with God. This is the power of the gospel. This is the power of kingdom living. And this is the healing, redeeming, and transforming power of Christ. Blessed are those who find their strength in him. Amen.